the commander's intent, go help Americans, was crystal clear as far as I was concerned. It set the stage for me very clearly that this situation was not a normal situation. This is not normal circumstances. And they trust my judgment to go up there and figure out where I could be value added. Welcome to the Air Force Doctrine Podcast. My name is Nicholas Underwood. On this episode, I sit down with retired Lieutenant General Brad Webb and discuss his experience as an MH-53 pilot and mission commander in responding to the 9-11 attack on the World Trade Center and Pentagon. As we discuss, General Webb relates his experience to the principles of Mission Command and the five C's of a Mission Command culture as detailed in the newly released AFDP 1-1 Mission Command, available at doctrine.af.mil. Please join us. Lieutenant General Retired Marshal Brad Webb's service spans 38 years in the Air Force. During his career, he served as the Commander of Air Education and Training Command and Air Force Special Operations Command. He has commanded in squadron, group, wing, numbered Air Force, and NATO positions. He is also a command pilot with more than 3,700 flying hours, including 117 combat hours in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Bosnia. Leading up to the events on September 11, 2001, then Lieutenant Colonel Webb was serving as the 20th Special Operations Squadron's Operations Officer, participating in an exercise supporting joint partners at Fort Bragg. Awakening to the news of the attacks, Lieutenant Colonel Webb was relayed the simple commander's intent of, go help Americans. General Webb and his crew's embodiment of the five C's of a mission command culture and ability to operate under the principles of mission command in response to 9-11 is an inspiring and instructional case study for all airmen seeking to better understand the future of Air Force leadership and command and control. General Webb, thank you so much for being here. I, just for a background for our audience, when we were writing AFDP 1-TAC-1 Mission Command, we ran across your story in Daryl Whitcomb's On a Steel Horse High Ride, uh, but the vignette didn't really get into details, so I was hoping that we could bring you on today and have you tell the full story and maybe dive into some Mission Command. So thanks again for being here, and if, if you want to tell the story, we'd be super happy to hear it. Absolutely. It's my pleasure and an honor to be asked. That mission set, uh, so to speak, just kind of happened because of uh, circumstances. I was the director of operations for the 20th Special Operations Squadron at the time. We were deployed in several locations on exercises. I had several aircraft in Asheville, North Carolina, doing mountain training. And then the rest of the deployment was in Fort Bragg, uh, North Carolina, uh, doing support with special operations up there. So really how this all came about was we had been night flying uh, that week. I had turned on the TV as most folks do. And, you know, when I had woken up that morning, it was right after the first aircraft had hit one of the World Trade Center buildings. And uh, as I was watching the second one hit, which then of course, I, like everyone else uh, in America knew that that wasn't sure, there was no way that was an accident. And so I, I always carried my secure phone uh, with me. I, I plugged it in and, and connected to the wing right away. And, and also they, they looped in the AFSOC, the, the MAGCOM headquarters. And really the directive was get uh, everybody on base as soon as you can. In those days, Hope Air Force Base sits inside of uh, Fort Bragg. Fort Bragg was an open base or an open post, and they knew that they were going to lock down. So we, so we were just waking everybody up and you know pack up and let's go get in, get inside, which is what we did. And then we showed up at the JSOC compound, and I just kind of you know walked into their jock and checked back in with AFSOC. Uh, it was relayed to me uh, what our uh, tasking was going to be, and it was quoted as directly from uh, General Fogelsong, who was the uh, deputy chief of staff for operations at the time said go help americans in other words take your five ship of aircraft and and head up to the ground zero environs which of course in this case meant wire force base and to check in with 21st air force 
So that happened probably within a couple of hours of the incident. Let's just say noonish. I don't remember exactly. And the rest of the day was taken up with coordinating <laughs> flight clearance from the FAA. You can appreciate the the airspace all over America was shut down for obvious reasons, and we were just it took us that long to get clearance. So we left probably in the early to mid evening from Fort Bragg and made our way up uh, to McGuire. The part that really stands out to me is that really clear commander's intent, go help Americans. Yeah, the directive or the commander's intent, go help Americans, was crystal clear as far as I was concerned. It set the stage for me very clearly that this situation was not a normal situation. This is not normal circumstances. And they trust my judgment to go up there and figure out where I could be value added. Did you, as you kind of get that commander's intent, you got your crews and you, you have a set of tools. You know, obviously, uh, Pavlo's uh, trained to a variety of mission sets. But as you're going up there, you don't have a whole lot of information. And so what do you kind of imagine at this point you're, you're going to go up and do or are you just uh, waiting to find out? Well, we, we assumed, and I and it was probably relayed something the sort, that it, this was a rescue and recovery type of operation. And, of course, at the time, you know how information rolls. There's no earthly uh, inkling of how many people might have survived a collapse of the structures. Of course, that had happened by then. And uh, we thought that we would be in some kind of a rescue uh, mode to some degree, uh, but weren't sure. And so, really, our focus was, let's, let's get up there. Let's sort out what's happening when we get on the ground and uh, make a plan. And so really that that was during the day. I, but in the back of my mind, I figured it would be some something rescue rescue and recovery type of uh, oriented. Interesting. And so when you, you do arrive at McGuire, you're getting there and you're expecting kind of get a laid out plan of how you're going to be employed. But what was the reception actually like? Honestly, you know, this was Noble Eagle uh, from that basis perspective was all about uh, tanker support for the fighter cap. It was also the reception base for um, all the logistics that were flowing into the area, not just military, but FEMA and, you know, any of the FBI, any anybody that was coming in was kind of using that. So they had their arms full. They really didn't have a, a good feel for usage of the Pavlo helicopters. They weren't all that familiar with them, you know, and that's certainly understandable. So really nothing for me to do is what I got out of the early morning standup. So really, I oriented on one of the briefers was a guy that was a fire chief by trade out of Dayton, Ohio. And he, when he's federalized, he comes under the FEMA uh, rubric as an urban search and rescue task force specialist and specifically on logistics. And he was briefing, of course, uh, from his perspective, and I you know, locked in on him as, hey, this guy uh, is going to need help. And so so I just went up and introduced myself and said, hey, I'm Brad Webb. I got five big uh, MH-53 helicopters here. We're here to support you. What do you need? And that, of course, that began a whole series of what can you do, which was, well, the answer was, what, what do you need us to do? When can you go? When do you need us to go? You know, and, and this kind of back and forth, and he kind of oriented on what I was doing, and he asked if I could, um, one of the uh, urban search and rescue teams actually needed to be down at the Pentagon for support down there, and he didn't have a way to get them there. And he said, can you get these guys down there? Absolutely. So we launched and took their, their team down there. That was the first mission we did. And from there, I think he gleaned that, you know, Webb's kind of serious. So we started looking for, you know, employment there at Ground Zero. want to catch you real quick on... On something I think that's very important to the Mission Command, the mindset of it, you're in a jock that don't really have a an exact use for you defined. 
And so at this point, you're not being given a, a tasking, but in your mind, you're going, I'm here, I'm supposed to go help Americans. And so you, you find this uh, non-DOD agency and say, these guys need help. I know it's a difficult thing to describe that mindset, but what is your kind of your drive as you're there and you're going, okay, they have nothing for me that kind of for forces you to go, okay, I need to, I, I have a tasking, I need to make this happen. Well, probably a couple things as, and this isn't unique to me. I think most Americans that were watching events unfold after 9-11 probably felt the same way, which was, I want to do something. And certainly we felt that way. And being that close to it from McGuire Air Force Base to Manhattan Island in a helicopter is maybe a half an hour away. I'm not sure. So in other words, we were right on top of the situation. And we we wanted to do something. And clearly there was a high beehive of activity that was forming. So how do, how do we fit in was really the mindset. I certainly grew up in an environment where that was the norm. I think that it helps being in a joint, you know, growing up in a joint environment with Army, Navy, Marine, you know, Air Force kind of presence. And later, in later years, of course, it was interagency for sure. That that mindset helps because you're going to inevitably end up in situations, We one will these days, where folks around you, maybe even decision makers around you, aren't going to know exactly what you bring to the table. So you, you, you have to have some level of assertiveness, I think. It helps to have reps that way, but it's definitely, I think, in the spirit of uh, mission command and uh, mission type orders, you need to not be a wallflower. Get out there and say, here's what I can do. And, and you know, of course, nothing wrong with someone saying, yeah, thanks, uh, we got nothing for you. But in this case, you could tell that it was gonna be a situation that we, you could see they're gonna need helicopters. There's no doubt about it. It was just a matter of really, you know, it wasn't that hard finding, uh, you know, this urban search and rescue task force guy and said, I, you look like you could do some helping. How's five helicopters sound? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I think you said it that very well. The definition of mission command is, is evolved. And then uh, one tack one, we'll see that it has now been defined as a philosophy. The idea that there's an embodiment of these big elements of, uh, of mission command, the principles, as we call it, and these attributes, what we call the five C's in the document, that changes the way in which we approach problems and approach uh, operations. Uh, instead of this is what I do, just as you said to the to your your FEMA contact is what what do you need me to do? I have tools yeah. and skills, and I will apply them to your situation. In the early days of our support, the you know I, I established with him what can you do? What do you need me to do? Kind of give and take, uh, but by giving the mission orders of go help Americans, that established crystal clear in my head that this wasn't situation normal. This wasn't business as usual. We needed to use our noodle to sort it out. I honestly, and I and I don't mean this in any way disparaging because this guy's a really good friend of mine, but I don't think he'd been empowered that way. His FEMA construct, his was to go out there and exercise the process and, and do defense support to civil authorities the way you've been trained, which of course I was aware of defense support to civilian authorities given some experience that I had respective of kind of counter, more kind of counterterrorism related stuff humanitarian relief operations or whatever you want to call this situation, I didn't really have any experience. What I did have was the knowledge that this isn't business as usual and we need to figure it out. 
We need to make it happen. And that was a little bit of a rub for him for several days because he, I don't, I don't believe he was that empowered. In fact, he was catching quite a bit of uh, grief for being kind of way out on the limb until he got a word back from the FEMA director several days into it that, as I think, I think people were trying to throw him under the bus at this, hey, we got this wild card out there at McGuire. And he said, actually, I think all of y'all need to be behaving like him because he's he's out there getting a lot of good stuff done. And when he got when he got relayed that message that the FEMA director had his back, it was an it was a it was literally a, a light switch. And we were we were rocking all the more with let's figure out how do we get it done. You know, no longer was he concerned with who's paying for the gas bill and you know the stuff that's important. I mean, I'm I'm not saying that's not nothing, but I I, I had even checked in with AFSOC on hey he's concerned with who's paying for gas. And they said, well, Webb, you're on an Air Force base. You're flying log T training time on your code and your forms, and we'll figure it out later. It's just, it wasn't, my my leadership was not concerned about it, and I wasn't going to be concerned about it. We'll, you know, we'll keep track of it, and we'll, we'll sort it out at the end of the day. And so I want to make sure I understand that. So it sounds like he's uh, operating under more of a detailed directive, a very go out and make sure this process works yeah. with getting gas and the bureaucracy is set and works this particular way and it seems that to be his goal and yours is a very strategic in-state go help americans and so there's creating some friction there till eventually he's empowered by his his commander is that is that what i'm understanding that's right yeah he I, you know he this person was very used to responding to floods to hurricanes to earthquakes and you know what have you and was very steeped in the process of how the process works. I wasn't. <laughs> really. I mean, I, I understood that you know there surely there's a there's some methodology that employed, but I it was a secondary priority to me. Priority one was what my leadership chain had said was figure out how to plug in and go help America. I mean, go help Americans. That's it. So I know in the uh, from from the story that you, you get tagged up with the FEMA director and you get your crews down onto the scene. And so I, I'd like to talk a little bit about it because uh, you found a, a rather unique landing place to get into the scene and then yeah. maybe describe uh, you go from kind of an, an area of where there's not a whole lot of information. Uh, and then what does that change when you actually get real close to the tactical edge there? Obviously, uh, we knew we were aiming to get down to ground zero. And of course, that's Manhattan Island. It's a it's a very tight uh, spaces. The heli you know, Pavlo helicopter is a pretty big helicopter. And the first, you know, kind of obstacle is where are we going? Where, where are we going to land? <clears throat> I just it just so happened that you know, guys that were on the uh, deployment with me, some of them had been part of the first helicopter squadron, which which are Huey uh, VIP uh, flying helicopters. That part of their job was to fly uh, routes in New York City, and they were aware of this uh, museum piece in the Hudson River called the USS Intrepid. They evidently they landed their Hueys there, you know, kind of as part of their routine. And so we did some quick research and, you know, got the phone number to the museum curator or the CEO, uh, who was a retired Marine Lieutenant General. And I called him and let him know who I was and what I wanted to do. And he said, Yep, absolutely. When are you coming? And I said, I can be there in a half hour. He goes, You give me Give me an hour and a half. I got to clear some stuff out of the way. You mean museum pieces <laughs> on, <laughs> on, the, on the deck? And so we showed up there and landed. From there, the situation learned to skyrocket because unbeknownst to me, the Intrepid, along with I think the Javits Center in downtown, 
uh, Manhattan. We're kind of hubs of uh, where uh, all the responding, you know, first responders and other responders were coalescing. One of them was certainly on the Intrepid. And so when I landed and showed up and said, hey, got a few helicopters here, you know, what was left of the Port Authority, the New York City Police Department, the New York City Fire Department, uh, New York City Emergency Management Team, FBI, and who knows what, what else. It, absolutely, we need someone that can get us an aerial view because we're still grappling with, you know, the, this is the next day, obviously. We don't know where all the fires are. We don't know where possible routes into the area might be. We don't know if there's confined spaces that might have the possibility of having survivors. You know, this is very early, obviously, in the in the operation. And the helicopters that they had weren't able to fly to the, at least where they needed to view from, because of all the uh, suspended concrete and everything. And it was basically dust clouds that were still in the air. And the Pavlo could, because it had as an engine air particle separator system called EEPS, that really kind of uh, filters out the impediments in the air. And I was confident that we could fly in that, which we could. You know, we were obviously diligent checking engines, stuff like that. But so that's what we did. Our first missions were to just take a, a big team of uh, all those folks that I mentioned uh, agency-wise and let them get their first kind of uh, overhead awareness. The helicopter, as as in those days, had a VHS uh, tape deck in it. You know, <laughs> you know, nowadays it would be CD or you know, thumb drive or what have you. And we could record out of the uh, the FLIR ball, the forward looking infrared uh, ball, and then we, which we did. You know, flight engineer kind of can steer it around and uh, record where they wanted to record. That worked okay, because, but you know, you got the guys in the back saying, "Hey, can we get a view of you know?" such and such a building, which of course we don't know one building from the others. You know, we're not, obviously it's my, this is my first time I'd ever seen New York City. And so they're trying to say, hey, can you look at World Trade Center number seven? And we're like, uh, which one's that? <laughs> yeah, we don't know. <laughs> but you know, so anyway, we but we made a tape for them and landed and that was proved very useful to those guys there that you know had established their command center on the, on the Intrepid. I yeah. wanna pull out some of the environmental piece to, to really connect this. Obviously, this kind of response, humanitarian uh, civil response here is a little different than, than combat operations, but there are something that I think is, is very useful to pull out in terms of understanding the information flow of the environment. We talk a lot about future operations and contested, degraded environments where comms are down. But we also talk about ops tempo being much higher than we ever have before. And I don't think there's ever a connection to how the flow of information slows down when ops tempo goes up. And I think that's a great example of you, you got there and you're, you, you were suddenly able to get a lot more information being right there at the edge than you could at the jock. And it wasn't because of degraded communications. It was just because of the pace at which the operations were happening. And perhaps there's a good parallel to, to what we look at now and in the future uh, in combat. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the one piece I think would be germane to ensure that we fit in here, because I, I actually think that that role was our, our uh, key role. It was early on. They didn't have good real awareness at all. Uh, our guys, when we got home from that mission that night, unbeknownst to me, and I think that's important, got together one of my planners, Captain Planners, who was understanding what was happening around us uh, and how we had you know, contributed that day, got together with our maintainers and some of the security forces folk from McGuire. And the security forces had this camera. I, I suppose it's an infrared camera 
that can see through concrete. In other words, they can see heat sources. And so the guys overnight devised a scheme in which they mounted this camera to the what we call the hellhole, which is really the cargo hook compartment in the 53. The, we, the payables didn't generally carry the cargo hook because it's an external load kind of capacity. We, we don't usually use it that way. So it's just an open space. And they mounted that that camera in the in that space, connected it up to the recording system. And when I woke up the next morning and, and, and got ready for today's the day's missions, they it was it was already functional and ready to go. That ended up being a boon because when we took the planes up that day and we had these cameras on board, now the guys in the back, the the emergency responders, et cetera could steer the, you know, I had a little remote thing. You could steer the camera. They could record on and off the way they wanted to. There wasn't this kind of gossip train relay to the flight engineer, the pilot on what they wanted. We just needed to hold it in the general area. They could move the camera where they wanted to, wanted to see and record. And I, I think that that was the single biggest contribution that we had. I'm pretty proud of that because that was not web directed at all. That was maintenance supervisors, captain planners, um, security forces who didn't work for us at all that understood what the mission intent was and moved out. Now, of course, I, I did due diligence on you know talking with them, but it was it was it was a sight to behold, and I think it was the single biggest contribution to our uh, five days or a week worth of support up there. Uh, the story you just told is is definitively disciplined initiative being exercised by your crews. So you woke up and you went out there and you saw this camera had been installed and you're very comfortable with this. And, and what makes you comfortable with this as you talk to your, your maintainers and the guys that installed this aircraft? Well, the, this wasn't a wild hair from a captain with a good idea that went out and did it without any kind of appropriate supervision. I consider the, uh, the maintenance soups on the line, they were brought in fully and they were, they, they said, oh, yeah, we can do this and helped them. I mean, they, they, they did it. You know, the captain just asked them, hey, would this be possible? It, it passed the, the smell test to me. The maintenance guys were perfectly comfortable with it. The security forces were thrilled to be able to contribute, just like, as I was ex describing earlier. Everybody just wanted to do something. If it's a piece of kit that we have that can help out, absolutely. So, so I, it was, it, I, is it secure in there? You know, is it going to, does it work? Is it compatible with our? system yes sir it's all good then let's do go and that's that's interesting we talk about mutual trust and shared understanding frequently as these like blocks and these very intentional elements but a lot of that comes very organically your crews are demonstrating that the captain that pursues this is there demonstrating a very shared understanding of of what we're here what we're trying to do and, and pursuing that out i think a lot of times we look at these very pointedly but the principles themselves all flow together to make each other work so one of the reasons that we move to a more detailed directive within our policies is generally advertises reducing risk, whether it's strategic risk, tactical risk, risk to personnel. There's there's a lot of different reasons. Yet uh, one of the principles says to accept prudent risk. And so you kind of, as we parallel the two mindsets here between you and, and the FEMA contact, he's trying to reduce risk by maintaining this process of bureaucracy. It's, and it's what he's been, been told to do but you're over on a, a much larger commander's intent. And traditional thinking would think that you're having to accept a lot of risk to do this. But I, I don't think that's the case. There's there's definitely a different mindset 
So how are you kind of framing risk to your crews in terms of their left and right bounds? Well, you know, to the crews, it was more about operational employment risk, which really, honestly, it wasn't that there wasn't that much risk. You know, the, you know, things that we were being asked to do, carry logistics missions or hover over the ground zero, albeit maybe in a strange environment with respect to suspended dust or granite or what have you, making sure that we didn't make a, a bad situation worse really was the kind of the, the guidance I gave them because we didn't know the, the stability of the other buildings that hadn't fallen yet, that clearly it had damage. And we didn't want to obviously you hurt people that were working the rubble pile or anything like that. But but operationally, that was where they were. Where I think what I kind of kept between me and FEMA guys was is really risk, if you want to call it that, uh, on an authorities or an administrative side. And I did check in with AFSOC periodically, and there was no, there, I certainly got no blame. Hey, this is what they're concerned with. And they're like, you, you could feel the sh shoulder shrug over the phone. Hey, Brad. <laughs> yeah, so I, I felt vindicated at every turn that we're doing the right thing. We may not be doing things absolutely 100% right. It's nothing that can't be sorted out afterwards. One of I, I want to transition here to talk a little bit about the the crews. We kind of pulled apart Mission Command as a as a mindset, and we talked about these elements that have to be in place in order to go out and and execute what you you and your crews did uh, admirably. I think the best way to ask this is to think about this situation and imagine your crews having to go knowing they were going to go do this. And if you knew you were going to operate this this with this broad intent all the time in the future, would that change the way in which you tra uh, trained your crews? I think that we were at in an advantageous position being special operations crews that have arguably more opportunity to exercise judgment in conditions of ambiguity. And I'm not saying it was 100%, because it's not that way, lock, stock, and barrel inside of AFSOC or inside of SOCOM or anything else. But there, I, I believe that there is some degree that's very, very useful. You can't just exercise that when the balloon goes up. You, you need to have trained with ambiguity, trained with uncertainty, Leaders need to obviously be competent and, and exercise good oversight, but you have to allow for it outside the box thinking to take root. Because at the end of the day, training is about honing skills, but the exact skill that you're exercising may be used in a combat environment or in, a, in an uncertain environment, or it might be something that's very akin, but you need to apply it in a different way. That is, I think, a fundamental tenet uh, of what we're trying to get after here. So I wanted to kind of give you an opportunity to really talk about empowerment in general. So empowerment of airmen is definitely at the core of mission command, but empowerment takes initiative. It's difficult. There's a feeling of commanders, feeling of risk there. There's a, a confusion that sometimes happens between uh, enthusiasm and capability. What do we What do we need from our airmen? What do we need for our commanders to really empower our force? Really important question. I think this is really one of the items that I really focused my last command tour at AETC on. As a leader empowers, there is a certain, pre, at least one prerequisite that you have to uh, pay attention to, and that is the acknowledgement of competence. Because we have a phrase for if everybody's empowered and we're all running around and being empowered airmen, that's called Lord of the Flies. There has to be at some level 
someone that acknowledges or that labels a person or a team or whatever, this is, they have competency, they have, they are empowered to move out. I think that's very important. And I, I kind of alluded to this a second ago, but the key ingredients, the human clay that the United States Air Force has is the quality of our people. And I know from where I speak, because I had, I've done tours in other, other nations, I've been involved in, you know, I was a commander in NATO. There are countries in our alliance that hold American military fighters as, as the, the standard. And why is that? Because of our NCO Corps, specifically our professionalized NCO Corps. There are nations inside NATO that have conscripts and they have officers, and they are looking to jumpstart their kind of professionalized NCO Corps by reflagging some of their officers into senior NCO ranks because of the example of the U.S., Without building this whole watch of why, how we are different than China, let me suffice to say that the Chinese, at the end of the day, while they don't have much bureaucracy and they can line up their priorities in a in quick manner, they don't fundamentally trust their people. And our asymmetric advantage is that we do. And if we've established competency and empower our folk, man, you want to talk about a force multiplier. And so when we talk about how do we exercise, you know, mission command and what does it mean, we need to always keep this in the forefront. It, yes, it's for a great powers competition, but I, I mean, I would hold the United States Air Force's response in COVID uh, as a great example. That's not combat, but we were faced with something that was clearly an unusual situation. This wasn't business as usual. You know, as General Goldfein said, this is business as required. And I remember early on in, in COVID, I sent a note to all echelons of my command, parroting what General Golfing had just said. This isn't business as usual. This is business required. And I've got your back. Figure We still have a mission to do. The readiness of the United States Air Force will literally fall off a cliff if we don't continue to train. So how are we going to do it? And I don't know the answer you guys do, uh, but we got to figure out what we can do. I know it's not going to be everything that we've done prior to COVID, but you know, I got some responses back. Hey, sir, you know, I've never commanded in a co in a pandemic before. Yeah, uh, neither have I. I mean, <laughs> the last one was 1918 or whatever. And so, you know, we just need to figure it out. It didn't take long, I'm telling you. Once people saw that, uh, hey, we're serious about, you know, this way of doing basic military training is not going to be like we we did it last week, or this or pilot training or tech training or you know, you know, that happened to be my portfolio. And we moved out with enthusiasm. And it wasn't without some in the early days. You know, it's it's we had scared people. It, it took some direct, you know, eyeball to eyeball engagement with uh, folks to go, hey, this is what I need you to do. What do you need from me? Well, sir, I, I want to live on billeting because I don't want to go home to my family right now because I might. OK, so we got them rooms in building. We built a tent city uh, right there in the middle of the basic military training so we could say what. I asked them, what do you need? Make sure they got it. And then there was an, they moved out in, in tall order. That, that's one example. It's not a combat example. It's not, a hum, it's not you know, the 9-11 response. But it's these type of things that I think are really important. People that came out of this environment you know, can show, prove beyond the shadow of a doubt, they can think outside the box and they, they can be very successful in an empowered situation. As we sat down at the LeMay Center here to to draft this document, one of the early revelations as we're looking at the literature on Mission Command and we're looking at our own doctrine was that Mission Command is not 
entirely new. This is not a new template. This is a, a natural, I think we use the words natural evolution and re-emphasis on the very doctrinal precepts that uh, made us who we are. And so I think uh, you, you identify, hey, there's lots of examples of mission command happening in the Air Force and, and, and adopting the mission command principles now that we're putting words and a re-emphasis and an increase or an evolution onto what allows us uh, airmen to be great. And so I think that's fantastic. And perhaps uh, for any of the listeners, if you're executing mission command and it looks uh, vastly different than anything you've ever done before, you may not be doing it correctly. <laughs> so uh, uh, that, that's excellent, sir. I would applaud the LeMay Center for fleshing this out because, I mean, you know, look, the situation that I just described, one with 9-11, I was a, I was a, at that point almost a 20-year uh, officer in AETC. I was a 38-year officer. I mean, I have a vast pool of experience to be able to fall back on. But if we're asking uh, NCOs, even if it's mid-career NCOs, mid-career officers to exercise uh, commander's intent and understand it, a little bit of scrutiny uh, as you've done with the five C's and some of the other key principles is uh, really, really important. So I think LeMay is to be applauded for that. It was uh, certainly a group effort and uh, all of our processes sent it out to the Air Force at large to make sure we get uh, significant weigh-in and a lot of direction from uh, uh, half as well. So definitely a group effort, but appreciate the kudos. As, as we get to the end here, sir, I wanted to kind of give you an opportunity, uh, again, leveraging your, your vast experience Thinking back, having been able to see the evolution of the Air Force through periods of big change, uh, now in a big change again to uh, this kind of this new refocus, this retool, and as we go to Mission Command and try to give the the thoughts officers, mid-career NCOs should have in their mind as they they move towards this Mission Command culture. And, and I'll caveat that with saying that I, I like this kind of be the final word. So I'll thank you again for being here. This has been tremendous, and I know it's going to be super helpful to our force. So thank you for your time. Oh, absolutely. My my honor and my pleasure. You know, I keep coming back to kind of the, the same thing, but you can tell I, I really believe that the asymmetric advantage that the United States Air Force enjoys is a professionalized NCO Corps. And so often I get asked, do you have any regrets about, you know, if you, had, if you could change one thing? And, and honestly, I don't have that many regrets. And the, the more I, I was asked that question, I finally said, you know, I, I was blessed in that I had a six-man aircraft that I flew. It was four NCOs, two officers. Everyone is just a very sharp team. But the NCOs developed themselves. And they did a fine job, by and large. But I think the officers, and I include myself in this, could have done a better job of mentoring our NCOs to, to be further down the road, more than just the best flight engineer, more than ju just the best aerial gunner, but to be future uh, senior enlisted advisors in a joint environment, you know, command chiefs in the Air Force. Some of them did. They did by and large of their own accord because we, we the officers, were focused on officer development. We were pretty good at that, but we tended to view the NCO Corps as technicians, which of course they are very skilled technicians, but the NCO Corps can be, can be, and is more than that. They are really, really, really good at every leadership attribute that the officers are, regardless of what audience I was in, I'd probably uh, pass that on because I think to keep, you know, feather in the nest of that asymmetric advantage for us will really help us in our journey on a mission command and to help us confront 
the challenges that we have from a national security perspective going forward. That's going to do it for this week's podcast. The show is recorded, edited, and produced by the LeMay Center's Doctrine Outreach Section. Special thanks to Lieutenant General Brad Webb, the LeMay Center, and Air University. As always, the views expressed by our hosts and guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Air University, the Air Force, or any government agency. All Air Force operational doctrine is available at doctrine.af.bill, as well as links to tactical, support, joint, and sister service doctrine. I'm Nicholas Underwood. We will see you next time.